Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast where we discuss breakthroughs in medicine and crop biology and other aspects where biotechnology solutions can help solve problems for people and the planet. Uh, my name is Kevin Folta. I uh, do this podcast every week. And this week we have an opportunity to meet with um, a couple of speakers today. But one of our uh, people we'll talk to is going to serve as a guest host. And he's one of the first people who's actually done the job of saying, hey, I know somebody cool I'd like to talk to. Could we do it on the podcast? So I'd like to welcome from University of Missouri, Nat Graham. How's it going, Nat? Good. How are you? Okay. So you're um, at University of Missouri. And I guess uh, I should mention that we did meet maybe back in March. Yeah, I think it was around March. Yeah, and I was actually visiting the campus, and you were very kind to you know kind of take me around and everything. But uh, could you um, well, tell me a little bit about what your job is there and why you study what you study? Yeah, so I'm a graduate student. I'm a researcher in the Department of Biology. I work in a lab with Dr. Jim Birchler, and so we work on different methods to improve how transgenic technology works. Um, specifically, we work on how you can add transgenes to, in our case, corn, without interfering with the rest of the genes that are already in the plant. Yeah, so I see why that's important, because you're not disrupting any of the normal function. What uh, his lab is famous for is this idea of like mini chromosomes, like adding an extra gene or two or cassette of genes onto an extra whole new chromosome that's then inherited stably. Is that the right right thought? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so we work on corn, and for whatever reason, there's a couple of different types of corn that have an extra chromosome. It's what we call the B chromosome. And it's just, it's kind of inert. It doesn't really do anything. It's just there. So because it doesn't have any genes on it that you could interfere with and it's separate from the rest of the genome, it's a perfect way for us to target new traits right onto that extra chromosome, what we call the mini chromosome then. That's pretty cool. Uh, does it work in humans? You know, I don't know. 
<laughs> I have no idea. I could use a few more traits. Right. I know it's um you know and and uh, anyway I I could go into a million routes on that one but we'll just leave it there. So what what's your experience as a graduate student in biology? I know it's more and more uh, fewer students are heading that direction, especially domestic ones. Um, and uh, what led you to be a student in biology, and how have you found the experience so far? Yeah, so I I don't know. I, I like biology a lot. I got into it because I was not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And so I ended up doing some different things and taking some classes. I went to Truman State University. It's a little school in North Missouri. And I saw a lecture on food security there where they talked about, you know, we're going to have 10 billion people by 2050, but we don't have enough space. We don't have enough food to feed them all. It's this big problem. And so that kind of got me energized into, well, we've got all this cool technology. Is there a way we can use all of that to help solve these different problems? And so that's kind of what got me into the field. And so then I started looking around at graduate schools and things, and I found the lab I'm in now, which is doing right up the alley of figuring out how to make our technology work for us. Yeah, you really can't get much better than University of Missouri for that kind of uh, for those applications and grains, especially. And uh, folks like Jim Birchler, uh, as good as he get you can, as good as you can get um, in terms of uh, innovative, uh, cutting edge science. And so, what's next for you in your uh, in your career? I'm not sure. I uh, I'm kind of open to anything. I'd like to. I'm kind of liking getting into the communication side of things. I'm starting up a project here with communication. Um, but I'm not, I'm kind of open to anything at this point. I've probably got a year left, so I'm kind of starting to seek out what, see what's out there. Well, that's really cool. So you, you, you can use this opportunity as your curriculum vitae, <laughs> uh, your audio CV. Well, tell me more about this, uh, communication program that you're starting. There's a lot of different ways you can do outreach at university of Missouri, but I, when I started looking into it, I realized a lot of the opportunities are really targeted towards kids. And you go to elementary schools, middle schools. I've done some of that. It's actually kind of cool. I did, I took like 100 kids through a day and we did genomic extractions of strawberries and they can get all the DNA out. That's really cool. You can see them get all excited. But in my mind, we don't target the adults a lot. And those are the people who are voting and those are the people who are telling their kids really what they should believe too. And so I wanted to figure out a way we could do a program where you can kind of target the adults in town. And so I, we're starting up a program called Science on Tap. There's a few of them around the country where I have graduate students to a week that, or to a month that will come in and talk about what it is that they do at a bar in a pretty relaxed setting to anyone in the community who's interested in coming out and finding out what they do. And that's a really great idea. I think that any, and I would encourage any graduate students to do this kind of thing, not just because it's an important aspect of how we can share our science with a community, and a community that understands what you're doing is is a much better uh, community than one that is looking at the work at universities as adversarial, which comes up a lot. But this is also a good thing for you as a graduate student to be kind of demonstrating leadership and coming up with ways that you can define your niche that makes you unique from the other um, thousand postdocs that will apply for those positions. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's kind of been exciting to see how excited other graduate students are about the opportunity. I was kind of worried about, can I get enough speakers to do it? It's only once a month, but it's really 
can I get enough people? And I've been really surprised if within the first week I filled up the first semester and people are pretty excited to go out and kind of spread what they do. Now that's extremely cool. And especially because it's good practice for people who will eventually be on the job market to learn more tricks about how we can better prepare our science for a public audience and not just talking to our peers, but talking to the people who are the decision makers in our communities who, as you mentioned, who are voters, who are helping to construct local policy. And uh, for every one person we can touch and we can help understand what technology can do for food and farming, the uh, that message helps resonate. So this is a very good use of your time and super glad you're doing that. No, thanks. It's, it's going to be fun. So tell me about uh, today's guest and, and maybe how you came across him and, and what uh, some of the general aspects of his particular program. Yeah, so we have a weekly seminar here for people who work on plants that will come in from around the country and talk about what they do. And I just happened to go to Dr. Gooden's seminar. He's talking about how coffee is really important in the world and how there's this virus that's affecting it. And I had never heard a thing about it. I mean, I'm pretty active in figuring out how you know genetic modification can help and the different plant diseases that are out there. And I'd never heard about the severity and just how bad the virus potentially could impact the economy of the world. And he was really well-spoken, and I thought the work he was doing was really cool, and he had an idea of how biotechnology could help solve that kind of a problem that's affecting a lot of different countries around the world. And coffee also tends to be affecting a lot of countries in the developing world. So coming up with solutions that can help this highly valued crop really can bail out local and regional economies. Yeah, and it's, you know, I don't drink coffee myself, but I see a lot of people who do, and I keep thinking, man, that's a lot of money that's exchanging hands that's kind of at risk for a virus that no one's really heard about. <laughs> wow, you don't know what you're missing. It's it's this wonderful <laughs> feeling of awakeness, like um, all of a sudden, it's, it's like uh, driving in a fog, and then you drink that cup of coffee, and it's like stepping out of the... Uh, out of the Kansas farmhouse into the into the land of Oz, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a wonderful experience for me every morning, and I'm enjoying my probably fourth or fifth cup already today. So I'm excited to talk to him. And what's really interesting about coffee, and we had someone on recently from World Coffee Research, um, was Hannah Neuschwander, um, and co-hosted by Hannah Neuenschwander. Go back to episode, I think, 30 if you want to review that. But um, what was fun to reinforce was the idea that coffee comes from a plant. And many people fail to realize that, and that these plants still have the same vulnerabilities and sensitivities that all of our agricultural crops do, and that we really are just one virus away from perpetual fogginess and uh, walking in the walls. I mean, it's, it is very, if we had something happen in coffee like is happening in banana or happening in um, uh, citrus, where there are these unstoppable diseases, um, we could be in for a long haul here. Yeah, so, Nat, let me see if we can uh, get Michael to join us here. Uh, Michael, are you there? I am here. Yeah, so that's really great. So from Lexington, Kentucky, we welcome Dr. Michael Gooden, who is um, a uh, associate professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at University of Kentucky. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. So if, could you tell us a little bit, just to kind of start the ball rolling, about what you do in the university capacity and the, kind of the scope of your research? 
with pleasure. Um, so, associate professor in plant pathology um, in the Department of Plant Pathology. Uh, and my focus is on primarily negative strand RNA viruses of plants, um, plant rhabdoviruses in particular. Um, in the genus that replicates the nuclear rhabdovirus genus, they replicate in um, nuclei of infected cells. Um, they're a very interesting group of viruses. Um, they're plant viruses, but they're related genetically to things like rabies and Ebola and Borna disease um, virus. Um, and so from a cell biology perspective, it's quite fascinating. And there are a number of these that are agriculturally uh, important. And actually, that's that experience that's what has brought me into this coffee project, because the... Um, the virus we've been focused on, uh, coffee ring spot virus, is what's called a dicora virus. It's a relatively new genus of emerging viruses, and they are essentially a rhabdovirus uh, cut into two pieces. They, their genome is split into two RNA segments, whereas the rhabdoviruses are a single um, segment of RNA that makes up the genome. So, um, yeah, this whole inter uh sort of coffee project and working in Brazil is basically all driven because of the, the type of viruses associated with this uh, emerging disease. That's really cool. So it's it's split in two. Is that like an evolutionary artifact of the way that viruses are transmitted from uh, from cell to cell and integrated? Is this just like two parts of it that then as both parts are expressed, they combine to make a uh, potent virus? Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question. So, um, and it's been a bit of a taxonomic nightmare um, to try to organize uh, where these uh, new viruses go. So, um, things like um, rabies and uh, e Ebola, and, and uh, so yeah, the nuclear adenoviruses uh, have uh, six or seven uh, genes. Uh, the largest being the polymerase and the dicora viruses, which are most closely related to the nuclear rhabdoviruses. All of these viruses replicate in nuclei of in infected cells. The dicora viruses taken the polymerase and put it on a separate RNA. So you've got two RNA segments instead of one. Um, RNA one has five genes uh, in it, and um, RNA two uh, has a single uh, code just for the polymerase. Um, why would the virus do this? Um, I, I think there's some interesting biological um, questions. So coffee um, is, is very genetically homogeneous. Uh, there's very little genetic variation uh, in the coffee being grown uh, commercially. Um, and then these are mite-transmitted viruses, um, Brevipalpus uh, species. And uh, these are fascinating um, from a sort of ecology, biology standpoint. Um, the populations exist as uh, haploid females. They, they um, basically are symbiotic with um, a species of bacterium called cardinium species um, that maintains the populations as haploid females, and they propagate clonally. And so there's very little um, genetic variation or chance for uh, genetic variation um, in the mite population. And so if you're a virus, what do you do? Um, 
your opportunities for um, recombination are reduced, uh, I think, in this at- this type of atmosphere. So if you split your genome, at least you have um, opportunities to reassort RNA segments. So something like uh, flu, influenza, okay, has multiple uh, RNA segments, and that's why flu is, is such a um, such a battle continuously, um, because it has excellent opportunity not only for recombination, um, inter-molecular uh, 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 switching, but uh, just trading uh, segments, all right? Um, so mixing uh, of segments to make new strains. Um, so that uh, reassortment um, uh, allows for uh, greater uh, genetic mixing. And um, it's interesting to think that maybe the dicoroviruses had to do that given the genetic constraints in, in their uh, plant hosts and in their vector. Yeah, that's yeah. Okay, so let me let me just clarify really quick for those who are listening. When we talk about the DNA polymerase, that's the enzyme that actually uh, synthesizes additional nucleic acids, so gen- additional genetic material from uh, from the virus as it replicates. But um, and also viruses have either RNA or DNA as their genetic material. Uh, depending right. upon the type of virus. And one just quick question is, how does this virus, if it's an RNA virus in the nucleus, how does it translate the protein? So how do you take that information from RNA and create the proteins that make it functional, which are out in the cytosol? Okay, excellent. Uh, great question. Um, so I, I like to say that these viruses are a little more human um, than other viruses, and, and, and what do I mean by that? Um, they are ne- what we call negative strand RNA viruses. So, if you try, if you purify the virus and uh, extract the, R- the genomic RNA, and were to try to translate it directly, you would not make biologically relevant uh, proteins. So that genomic RNA is actually the template. Um, and it's the copies of that uh, uh, template that's going to make the messenger RNAs. So uh, the genomic RNA is encapsulated over its entire length by a protein called the nucleocapsid protein. Um, you can think of this as like uh, in a human cell, uh, the DNA is associated with histones. So you have a ribonucleoprotein complex. Um, and then the virus, uh, when it infects a cell, actually carries with it the polymerase already made as a protein uh, associated with this nucleocapsid. And so basically you, what you've got is a, the transcriptional machinery is the infectious unit and it enters the cell and um, what it does, the first thing it does, it uses that genomic RNA as a template to then start to make a, uh, the, the complementary copies of it which generates the viral messenger RNAs, which get translated. So it goes to the nucleus, uh, transcribed. Those uh, messenger RNAs are exported to the cytoplasm and translated. Um, so um, humans, uh, you know, we, we, you know, you transcribe the DNA to make messenger RNA, gets translated um, uh, to make the proteins. So a lot of um, a lot of other viruses, um, and now. Um, actually are plus-strand RNA. So you can take the RNA out of the virus and its first job is to uncoat and be translated and generate the polymerase is its first step. But um, 
the negative strand RNA viruses, um, like coffee ring spot virus, like flu, um, come in template uh, ready to make messenger RNAs, uh, transcription ready uh, to make uh, messenger RNAs. Getting into how the viruses that you're talking about affect coffee, so just to kind of bring back how important is coffee to the world and to the economies? Let, let's let's just pick two uh, reasons for importance. Um, okay, so there's an economic importance. Um, obviously, coffee is um, second only to oil in terms of value of, of traded commodities. So there's oil and there's coffee, natural gas and gold are the four top traded commodities in the world. So as an e- economic driver, for some countries... Um, coffee is 70% of GDP, yeah? Um, and uh, coffee can only be produced uh, in a very narrow band in countries around the equator, um, primarily about five degrees north and south of the equator is this coffee belt uh, around the world. Um, Brazilian coffee is 40% of the world's supply, and so it's exceedingly important um, in, in that um, uh in that country. But let's look at the importance of coffee as a um, as its cultural relevance. And so um, I have an analogy that derives from organic chemistry. So all, all organic chemistry reactions take place in a solvent, right? Um, and uh, the reactions take place uh, within a solvent. Um, and so if you think about coffee, when, when do you drink it, right? Um, so it's that first date. It's that, um, hey, you know, we have to have a talk conversation. It's that graduate students and mentor designing new experiment. Hey, let's go have a sit in a cafe, design things. It's with your friends. Um, and it, there's a huge social uh, interaction um, that is driven Okay, through the coffee culture, right? That those conversations, and and so I, you know, I, I like to say that um, coffee is the solvent um, for the human condition uh, for a, for a great many cultures uh, in the world, right? It's I, I like to think of it as the stuff that keeps my heart beating. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's that. <laughs> no, if, if it's yeah, if if I stop drinking coffee, it gets down like in the low thirties, and I get dizzy and. No, I definitely need to keep uh, keep a steady state of caffeine uh, present. Yeah, so you mentioned that all of, like forty percent of the world's coffee is produced in Brazil. So is that kind of where the virus is also prevalent? Yeah. So um, correct. So most of the work, uh, well, uh, practically all the work on, on coffee rain spot virus has been done in Brazil. Um, it was first discovered there um, in nineteen thirty six. Um, it's not considered a, a major pathogen for a very long time. Um, there is one report of um, <clears throat> coffee ring spot in Costa Rica, uh, and we don't have data from, from other countries. Um, other countries, uh, they're primarily uh, fighting uh, coffee rust, which is a, a fungal disease as their major, uh, and uh, coffee borer uh, is an insect pest that's very important. Uh, and these tend to sort of fly over, um, you know, the radar of, of, of the virus problem, which is m- minor compared to some of these other fungal diseases. 
Um, <clears throat> so, but in, in Brazil, um, so even though the virus was discovered in 1936, now considered a very long time, uh, about in the last decade, um, just anecdotally, there's been increasing reports of the prevalence uh, of this virus. And, and why is that so? And we've seen this worldwide um, with um, things like cassava brown streak and tomato yellow leaf curl and uh, a number of possible viruses um, where, you know, viruses that were once, if not benign, just, well, not a major deal, all of a sudden now become uh, a major issue. And we, we call these emerging viruses. And there have been a number, uh, particularly in the last decade, 15 years or so. Um, is that linked to climate change? You know, it, 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 it's paralleled. Um, and, and, and one would uh, sort of hypothesize that there's a link uh, in changing uh, climate conditions. Um, and uh, so we did a survey uh, in 2014, 2015, uh, basically, just to ask the question, where is this virus? Because it's only been really studied in, in, in small pockets. And we did a survey over about 75% of the coffee-growing region uh, in Brazil, and we, we found it on 100% of the farms uh, that we um, we visited. And um, so it's, it seems to be everywhere. Um, it is, the, the, the mite vector is a dry weather pest. And so if it's hot and dry, you get higher uh, mite populations. Um, higher populations means a higher prevalence of the virus uh, as well. Um, and so that's probably been the major driver. Um, you know, uh, well, prior to this year, so uh, California and, and Brazil uh, experienced that very long uh, five, six-year drought uh, period. And um, within this period, there's a really... A large increase in, in the amount of uh, ring spot virus prevalence. And so, is that also the, is the case for the the mite also located throughout the what you call the coffee belt? Right. So there, there's um, you can't uncouple these two things. Um, the where there's mite, there's virus, um, and the the symptoms of the virus disease uh, show about two or three weeks after mite infestation. Um, and that's something we'd really like to look at. We've looked at the population structure of the virus. We'd like to look at the population structure uh, of the mites um, and, uh, and and see how these, these correlate. Um, but um, where it's been examined, all of these type of viruses replicate in their arthropod or insect vector. And... Um, and so we believe that, you know, as the mite expands its range, uh, so does the virus. Um, and why do I say there's this inextricable link? Um, well, in coffee, the, this ring spot disease, you get a ring spot uh, that's basically initiated at the site of feeding of the mite. And then that leaf, that infected leaf, um, will defoliate. Um, and so that that's sort of the, the problem uh, of this virus in coffee is the defoliation uh, that it causes, uh, which then exposes the cherries to secondary infections and, and sun scalding in particular, which could reduce uh, quality. Um, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so that's that's the 
coffee in Brazil is uh, uh, plantation grown, uh, open. Um, uh, th there's no shade canopy. In, in the wild, coffee is a um, understory tree, um, kind of like dogwood uh, in, in uh, um, eastern North America forests, right? Um, and uh, so you've got to have canopy trees over the, um, these understory trees. Uh, but in, in Brazil, the, the, the plantations are just too big. Production is just too big. Um, so they use these very bushy varieties. Um, and so the leaves are important uh, to provide that shade that the, the, the cherries need for, to mature properly um, and, and to produce high-quality coffee. So if you get a lot of defoliation, um, then, then that's, that, that's a problem. So that's a really good start to talking about the symptom spectrum that we see with this particular disease. Uh, we'll take a break right now, and then we'll be back in just a few minutes with more of Dr. Michael Gooden, who's an associate professor at University of Kentucky, talking about the coffee ring spot virus that's a problem in Brazil, but also other parts of the world. We'll be back in a few minutes with some more Talking Biotech. Grandma, don't touch that radio. Hi, Talking Biotechers, this is Vern Blazek, the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour, and booth announcer for the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're moving into our 40-somethingth episode, and we get lots of requests for an interview with Dr. Fulta himself. What makes that dude tick? How is that cat wired? We'll explore the deep crevasses of his soul in Talking Biotech episode number 50. So, you might recall that I interviewed him on my podcast, the Vern Blazak Science Power Hour, with your host, Vern Blazak. It was considered by some a raging case of non-transparency by those who wanted to cash a check with a manufactured scandal. It was so much not a story that we're going to do it again only using your questions. If you have a question you'd like me to ask Dr. Fulta, send it to my attention at talkingbiotechpodcast at gmail.com. I'll assemble all of the questions and grill that turkey with my interview for episode 50. He's a scientist, he's a thespian, and I'm a hard-hitting booth announcer that's glad to ask the hard questions. Let me know what you'd like to know. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Um, again, discussing this wonderful liquid called coffee. But more importantly, reminding everybody that this comes from a plant and this incredibly valuable commodity that most of us uh, enjoy every single day. It's probably the one plant item that everybody consumes. Well, not everybody. There's a few out there who have yet to discover the magic, but that, that many people uh, consume on a daily basis. And um, so we're, we're here today with uh, Dr. Michael Gooden at, from the University of Kentucky. He's an associate professor there who works on a coffee virus. We're also joined by co-host Nat Graham, who is a graduate student at University of Missouri, who studies many chromosomes and how you can move genes around in maize. And uh, Nat was kind enough to identify uh, Dr. Gooden as an um, outstanding candidate for uh, a guest here. 
And uh, please make your suggestions, too. It would be great to hear who you would like to hear from as well. So back to the conversation. We were talking before the break about the symptom spectrum associated with the um, uh, virus. And how wide has this spread? And where do we find this? Uh, all, where do we find this on the planet? So, um, excellent question, um, and something that's a real active uh, area of research and should be expanded. Um, Brazil is, is the major um, center of focus. There is one report um, from Costa Rica, as I said, and, and we don't know um, if this virus is in uh, other countries at any significant uh, prevalence. Um, and I, I have colleagues in, in Indonesia say um, that are they're scouting for it. Um, so one of the things we found, um, speaking of scouting, when we were in Brazil, is that the early symptoms uh, of copy ring spot virus look like uh, the start of a, a rust pustule. And, and so um, because rust is so important, uh, the major... Uh, disease uh, that everyone is focused on, um, people often mistake the virus symptoms for um, when you're learning to scout for this disease. Um, it takes you a little while to be able to differentiate between the, the true virus symptoms and um, and the rust symptoms. Once you find the differential, um, then, then it's easy um, and, and you can find the virus um, everywhere. Um, so... In terms of um, world spread, um, we actually do not have these data. Um, but because Brazil is 40% of world population and we know so little about this virus, we're really just centered uh, there at the moment to learn all we can um, before really expanding these studies globally. But I, I don't want to give the impression that um, this is impending doom for um for coffee or anything uh, like this. This is uh, viruses emerge um, and, uh, um, you know, there, there's still going to be <laughs> coffee in your cup tomorrow. Well, well that, that's good news because I've been stockpiling in the event that I, <laughs> I, have, a, I have an underground Patriot safe full of small arms and coffee. Uh, to guarantee my continued sustenance. I guess the other question would be then, um, w- how is it managed inside Brazil? Is it really a production question that uh, there are ways to use insect or miticides to control the vector, or how is it controlled? Right. So th- th- this is, um, and, and probably leading up to your biotech uh, questions, um, virus control, you cannot cure um, the plant virus infection uh, at present, right? The control of the virus means control of the mites. And at present, uh, some of these miticides are, they're, they're, well, they're quite toxic. And so they have to be used uh, judiciously and uh, with oversight. Um, so there's, there's not um, residuals uh, in, in the coffee. And so this is the, this is one of the major problems. If you could find a way to reduce um, sort of the chemical uh, impact uh, because the miticides, one, they're expensive um, and two, uh, there are residue issues uh, that, are, that are of uh, concern. Um, and, and so 
the, the other thing is, um, you know, the world coffee prices. I, I just looked it up. So um, a kilogram of Brazilian uh, green coffee bean is being traded uh, in, in the commodity markets for $3.40 a kilogram. Um, and so if you think about just coffee, uh, how it's grown, where it's grown, all the inputs that grow go into um, you know producing this, and um, and then you've got to sell it for three dollars forty a kilogram. Um, <clears throat> when prices are this low, uh, a lot of um, farmers uh, will uh, not have things like weed control because that's also expensive. And what, one of the things that we're looking into is. How does coffee, we know that coffee ring spot virus is capable of infecting weed, weed species, uh, amaranth and kinopodium and things like this that are cosmopolitan weeds. And so if you have poor weed control um, uh, because of low prices or, or whatever, um, does that raise the reservoir of the virus in, in the wild? Um, and the other thing that we're is really quite fascinating, um, certainly from a molecular biology, plant biology standpoint, is that um, there does seem to be, for some plants, uh, kinopodium being one, um, an increased susceptibility to um, this virus as the temperature increases, um, and modest increases, two to four degrees, uh, which is why this virus is very interesting from the standpoint of um, climate change, because two to four degrees is, I mean, right in the prediction window for um, global climate change, you know, certainly by 2050 projections. And so if increased temperatures increases um, plant susceptibility to this virus, will this virus spread to other crops? Will it uh, spread into weeds and, and raise the, the reservoir. If, if that happens, then there's a greater rate of transmission uh, to coffee, right? Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's quite complex. It's more than just controlling uh, the virus on coffee. You know, one is now concerned about, well, geez, uh, how do we manage uh, the reservoirs in the weedy population um, under conditions where... Um, coffee um, prices are low and the, the export beans uh, are low. So th th this is the challenge. Do you know if there's any biotech solutions that are being researched or has there anything been done in that sector to kind of combat the mites? Genetic engineering of coffee is still uh, extremely difficult. Um, um, to, to be able to regenerate a coffee plant from callus is, is still very difficult. So um, biotech solutions uh, really need to overcome this hurdle first um, to have a consistent and uh, um, you know some, somewhat facile way of, of, of making uh, transgenic coffee um, so we have um, very uh, since it's an RNA virus we have technologies probably very efficient uh, similar to how papaya ring spot virus is protected or zucchini is protected um, against viruses in, in the United States uh, using transgenic methods. Yeah. Um, so the technology you would deploy um, has been worked out a long time ago. is very efficacious. 
um, getting it into a transgenic coffee plant um, is is a major technical hurdle uh, right now, s- simply due to the uh, ability to transform it and regenerate coffee. So um, it'll be a, a while um, before that happens. The other question is, um, is the world ready for transgenic coffee? Um, would you drink transgenic coffee? And uh, this is a really you know interesting question. Um, and would you prefer to drink transgenic coffee over coffee that's been treated um, with chemicals? Okay, w- which do you see as, as more environmentally benign or healthier or a- anything like this? And I think this is still very much a, an open conversation, um, uh, particularly given the export markets, um, you know, in, in Europe or um, Japan or other countries. Um, where, where uh, or even the U.S., where um, where GMOs are uh, are still a contentious issue. <clears throat> but uh, for uh, overall control, um, I think we're going to have to have uh, integrated uh, approaches um, because with climate change, projections are things like coffee borer will get more severe. Uh, coffee rust has certainly. Um, been incredibly severe the last few years, and we're getting emerging things uh, like coffee ring spot virus. So it's it's not just that the virus problems are emerging. Um, there is at least a trilogy of issues um, at the insect, fungal, and, and viral levels um, that's making coffee growing very difficult. And then just the climate itself. Um, uh, we've already seen uh, effects of um, coffee plants that are flowering multiple times a year uh, simply due to the climatic changes that you know are um, beyond the norm. Well, there's all of this. And then the improved vectoring of humans around the planet. When transportation allows us to move quickly, you can not only spread the virus, but you can also spread the plants. You can move uh, mites Correct. around. So this is another contributing factor. And the other interesting thing about the biotechnology side is people will shun this idea, like you say. Would you rather eat something with, um, you know, the, either the chemical or the or the transgenic or the you know genetically engineered version? And um, probably the most clinically dangerous part of coffee is the caffeine itself, which has been is is a carcinogen. It's a known carcinogen. Of course, you know you probably have to abuse it like I do, but it's. Um, its risk in all of its, its its shows again our lack of understanding of what risk is. Um, caffeine right. is made by coffee plants to protect it from insects, you know, in, in its right. most basic form. So uh, we are drinking and, na- and enjoying a natural insecticide. <laughs> so it is weird how people don't really understand uh, what risk is and what are the components of coffee that could potentially contribute or save the crop. Right. Um, but I think, um, y- you know, within that, um, that's difficulty or um, there's great opportunities. Coffee is, uh, I'm thinking about designing uh, a course um, for like Janet or something like this, um, built around coffee. I think you can teach everything in, in coffee. Um, there's chemistry to be learned. There is fair trade, there's economics, uh, there's 
um, the sociology of coffee, um, just the poetry and, and the cultural uh, aspects to it. Um, and, and I think it, once you start to integrate the various components, then questions of, you know, what do we do? How does biotech fit into all of that? Because biotech has, has to fit into all of that. Um, there, there are, um, for some people, coffee is their livelihood, okay? And if you're growing um, organic uh, coffee uh, and you cannot ever use uh, chemical control and you get hit with coffee rust, okay, that is your livelihood, okay? Um, and how do you protect protect those communities? Um, and it, it's, it's somewhat can be easy uh, for us uh, uh, sort of on this side of the world um, to make these judgment calls um, which in some part of the world are basically life and death decisions to spray or to not spray um, to either try to protect your crop or protect your organic certification or things like this. These are quite complex um, socioeconomic issues um, uh, you know, under the present technologies and we will you know, going forward, impose upon that then uh, a biotech uh, contribution to the entire coffee story. And and so I think it's a rich uh, area for discussion and, and debate. Um, and, uh, you know, one should not, um, you know, sort of be a rush to say we will not do X, Y, or Z uh, without considering... Uh, the various facets of all what goes into to coffee production. Yeah. So have you ever, have you had taken the, de- I mean, I'm sure you've had the debate a little bit, but have you figured anything out about what the feeling is from the farmers or the consumers about how this debate might go? Um, so what, what I found in, um, in Brazil, and I, and I, I really should, um, and actually all, all the coffee places I've been to, but I spent the most time in Brazil is just a, a remarkable um, acceptance and, and willingness to, to work with um, folks in academia um, and to, to partner to protect their crop and produce the best possible crop. Um, and um, one of the really sort of interesting, if I can sort of give an anecdote, um, so it's the way we collected um the way we collected a lot of our material is simply, you know, driving around in the coffee-growing regions and just stopping and then walking onto farms and, and really not getting um, permission uh, beforehand. Is this sort of a, a unique... Um, that was my first time doing things like that. Here, um, one would upfront get permission from farmers and stuff like that. And, and, and this one particular day, we were... It was near the end of the day, and... Um, I was kind of uncomfortable. It was early on in, uh, in our survey, and I was a little uncomfortable with just walking onto people's farm and, you know, touching their plants and grabbing material off their plants. And um, I was assured that it's okay, that this is how it, it's done here. And um, this pickup truck's come barreling down the road, and I thought, here we go. This is going to be a confrontation. Uh, and, you know, screeching of brakes, and this guy jumps out, and he, you know, hey, what are you doing here? Um, 
why are you on my farm? And, and we explain that we're from the university and we're studying this disease. And it just, it just flipped. Um, and he said, well, we have to go to lunch. We uh, come up to the house. Let's have a coffee. Uh, let's discuss what you're doing. Um, and then what became, you know, 15 minutes of collecting leaves transformed into, you know, a multiple hour discussion and what can we do for you and how can we help you and um, how can the other farmers in this collective cooperative uh, work with you uh, on this? So um, from the farmer's uh, standpoint, just phenomenal, overwhelming support. Um um, because it's it's their livelihood uh, and and their passion, um, you know. Um, coffee drinking culture um, is, is quite passionate, but certainly coffee growing culture is, is equally uh, or more so because um, you get both. <laughs> you get to see it grow and you get to enjoy those um, well, the, the you know the, the coffee of your labor. So um, huge support uh, on the farmer side. Um, it's uh, it's whether or not. You can impose biotechnology into that and then get uh, consumer support. So how will this consumer respond? Um, it, it, it's, an, it's an open and debatable question. Um, but I, I think the more people... So um, there's an evolution, let's call it that, in, um, in coffee, right? So this so-called third wave of coffee production, first wave being... You know, coffee is just uh, a source of caffeine to wake you up in the morning and keep you going in, in the afternoon. And the second wave with, you know, Pete's and Starbucks, you started to get a regional, you know, identification. This is Sumatran and this is Ethiopian Yurga Shefi. And you start to get that. Now this third wave, it's almost like wine, okay? There's these regional variations and, you know, basically the... Um, the GPS coordinates uh, of the farm from the co- where, where your coffee is coming from it is printed on the bag. It's very intimate, um, you know, knowledge. Um, just just how you would treat wine varietals, say. Um, and I think once um, that becomes more culturally ingrained, and people take a real look at the communities of where the coffee in that bag that you're drinking from is coming from, then all these other biotech and social and economic issues will be more focused because they'll have to pay attention to it if they're that uh, involved uh, in that bag of coffee that, that they're growing on. So um, I, I see this all as, as, a, as a learning and opportunity um, to integrate communities from around the world. It certainly will enhance geographic literacy um, this third wave of coffee well, um, and which is which is a really good thing. Well, a lot of times in science, we find ourselves studying a given topic because it had some sort of cultural or I don't know other kinds of life or family relevance to us. Was there something that brought you to coffee in particular, Michael? Uh, in, indeed. Uh, so I, I was born in Jamaica, um, and it's a. Uh, Country and a, a culture with a rich uh, coffee culture, uh, very ingrained, uh, and it's really centered on um, Blue Mountain coffee, which is one of the rarest and, and most expensive coffees uh, in the world. So I've always had that as a background, and uh, <clears throat> so that's sort of my 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 rooting uh, to coffee. Um, 
and I've been to Indonesia um, and to you know, work with coffee producers there. Um, and then now in, in Brazil and to see all these different variants. Um, and, and what's interesting uh, to me um, you know, passionately is that coffees are um, very much like uh, people, right? Um, there, there's a lot of variation. It's all coffee, right? It's just like all people. Um, but then each one individually is uh, is quite unique. And so this one's a little more acid. This one's um, a little more, uh, it's got more fruit flavors, more chocolate, more caramel. Um, and you, if you get to know coffees uh, as people, um, then it's kind of, we kind of learn about each other. And uh, so... Um, for, for me, coffee culture is basically my sort of philosophy on, um, you know, of people, you know, sort of what's on the outside, what the label is uh, on the outside of the bag kind of doesn't matter. You've got to sit down with it and you've got to look at the nuance and, and the chemistry of it, uh, you know, as you consume it. And that takes time. And uh, if you give yourself the opportunity to do that, um, you can travel around the world with coffee. Literally, it's really quite fascinating. And so, if people wanted to learn more about your program or maybe follow you in social media, where would they look? Yeah, so um, I, I do have a, a website, a, a college website, um, but I'm, I'm happy if they um, just email me directly, uh, mgooden.uky.edu. Um, I don't have a, a massive. Um, uh, social media presence, but um, probably should. Um, and it, from the Brazil uh, the standpoint, uh, they can check the um, Innova Cafe. It's the coffee uh, research center at uh, uh, UFLA, which is the university that I, I study. So it's uh, I-N-O-V-A-C-A-F-E. Um, they have um, uh, uh, an excellent Facebook page with all things coffee. Um and uh, th- those would be, um, or you know, the, some of the times the best thing to do is just go down to your uh, local artisanal uh, coffee their uh, place and, and just talk to the barista there about the different varieties. And uh, it, it's remarkable how quickly uh, you'll be transported uh, around the world, um, you know, through coffees. So that would be a great place to start. Uh, Nat, where can I find more information about you on social media or about your Science on Tap series? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm not 100% active yet, but I'm trying to get there. Uh, my Twitter is the is Nat Not Nat. It's a play on my name, but it's N-A-T-N-O-T-G-N-A-T. And if you wanted to find out more, if you're in mid- Middle Missouri and you wanted to check out one of the Science on Tap programs we have, on Facebook we're Science on Tap Como. And on Twitter, we're SciOnTap underscore Como, so S-C-I-O-N-T-A-P underscore C-O-M-O. So you can find out more about that event that's going to go on through there. Okay, very good. And I, and I am now a follower. <laughs> Just signed on and got you there. So very good. All right, well, thank you both very much for joining us on Talking Biotech. And um, yeah, keep me posted on any big developments. So thank you very much, Michael. I will. Okay, and, and continue to enjoy your copy. I'll send you a collection. Awesome. Yeah, and thanks very much, Nat. We really appreciate you uh, reaching out, and uh, and uh, thank you very much, and best wishes on everything. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.